Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Alexis Cowan is a Princeton-trained PhD specializing in the metabolic physiology of nutritional and exercise interventions. She's a deep passion for facilitating the development and implementation of personalized holistic approaches to diet, exercise, and medicine. She also has an incredible personal weight loss story. Alexis, welcome. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. It's great to have you. And we absolutely must start with your personal story around illness and and subsequent weight gain and then weight loss. So let's start there. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot to unpack. I'll have to take it back probably to when I was around six years old um, in first grade. So I was basically having chronic like recurring strep throat for months at a time and would keep getting pulled out of school because I was sick on antibiotics for, you know, several rounds for multiple months. And, you know, at one point my mom was like, you know, this is ridiculous. She keeps getting pulled out. So I'm just going to keep her at home and homeschool her. So I was homeschooled for like half of first grade and all of second grade while I was, you know, trying to get well. And during that time, my weight kind of spiraled. So, you know, now in retrospect, we know that early use antibiotics early in life can lead to obesity later in life. But at the time, you know, antibiotics were given out basically like candy. And uh, so when I went back to school in third grade, I weighed probably double my classmates. And from there, it kind of just continued to spiral up uh, till about the early junior year, I guess. I peaked probably around 270 pounds. And, you know, in addition to that, I just kind of had a bunch of health issues. Like I would have constant skin issues, terrible acne, um, always some upper respiratory thing, at least, you know, three, four times a year. And, you know, I was kind of just done living that way. I had a lot of, you know, body aches and just not feeling comfortable in my body in general. So I decided to kind of do something about it. And at the time, Atkins was kind of popular. My mom had been doing that for a little bit. And uh, I, you know, kind of got into the science, I would say, of like how, like how to lose weight, like doing my own research online, trying to figure out what I need to do. And basically just went on, on like a standard, like cutting calories and like exercising every day, that kind of approach. So um, for a year, starting the summer after my sophomore year, leading into my junior year, Um, I started going to the gym basically every day for like an hour and a half, two hours, uh, like an hour of cardio and then like 30 minutes to an hour of weight training and would basically just be very strict about counting calories. I wasn't really prioritizing food quality at the time. It was really just like a quantity mindset. So, um, you know, processed foods are actually very easy to count calories with because it says right on the package, you know, this is how much is here. Uh, how much protein, carbs, fat, how many total calories. So you can easily count with that. So I was eating a lot of processed foods. I would say I was eating actually on the higher carb side and like higher protein and low fat because that was kind of a relic of, I would say the, you know, 2000s and the 90s also. Um, Though I was familiar with like low carb styles of eating, I, you know, personally just leaned more towards the high protein, high carb and lost a lot of weight. So during that year, I lost about 85 pounds. And then in the sub- subsequent year, I said, I would say I'd lost about another 20 pounds. So around hundred pounds total in like a year and a half. Um, so I came down to like 165 ish and, you know, I felt great. I 
looked pretty good. So I was also strength training. So that really helped to like kind of shape my body. And I really got into that modality of exercise personally as like a very um, empowering activity and also like helping me to like shape my body instead of just losing fat. Um, it actually helped me to build confidence in my like self image and um, the way I felt. But um, we also kind of know from a scientific standpoint now that when you lose a lot of weight, it can actually wreak a lot of havoc on the gut. And shortly thereafter, I developed pretty bad IBS. So this was like around 20 years old, like my early 20s. Um, I had really bad IBS. And that also probably was compounded by the fact that I had a terrible eating disorder after I lost the weight, which is like probably very, very common. Once you get into like the mindset of, you know, restricting what you're eating and treating food in this very narrow way, it's very easy to fall into disordered eating patterns, I think for many people. And, you know, so that was something I also had to work on and I'm sure not, did not help my gut situation. So I ended up going to the doctor. They said, you know, you're young, it'll probably pass. There's not really anything that we you know, would recommend other than there, like, there's some hard, like pharmaceutical drugs they could try, but I also didn't have insurance. So it was like, oh, I, maybe I'll just try to figure this out myself. So I ended up after a couple years of like, pretty having a pretty bad time. I went on elimination diet and I found out that dairy was a pretty big trigger for me um, symptom wise. So I ended up cutting it out for like three years and basically put my IBS into remission. And it was around this time where I was finishing up my undergrad. I was studying biochemistry um, at Moravian College, which is a small school in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. It's near Lehigh University. And so I was into the science at this point um, I was also kind of emerging into like a food quality mindset. So understanding like the quality of what I'm putting into my body, how that affects me, because I think the realization that dairy was such a major trigger for me made me think, well, what else am I putting in and on my body that could be causing me harm and discomfort? So I started to really take a look at, you know, what I was consuming um, and really move towards like eating mostly organic foods, like local meats um, whenever possible really cutting out processed stuff and really just saw like major changes in my health in general. So, you know, my, I had chronic skin issues that started to clear up. Uh, digestion was just majorly improved. And like I had suffered really bad with like ulcerative colitis, like IBS, like I mentioned for probably at least three years and, you know, just everything began to like repair itself. And um, if you look in the literature that it will literally say that like IBS is like a chronic you know, incurable disease and it's just not, not the case. Like a lot of times there are insults that if we identify them, we can, you know, reverse disease and begin healing and, you know, really optimize gut function, especially in this modern environment when there's so many tools available to modulate the microbiome and help to heal the gut and, you know, also modulate the immune system to be more anti-inflammatory um, in this very, you know, triggering environment, I would say from, um, an immune standpoint, there's a lot of chemicals that we're exposed to that we wouldn't have been exposed to evolutionarily that, you know, we're only just beginning to find out the ramifications of those. So really taking a proactive standpoint to nurture the gut, which is the home of our, the vast majority of our immune cells and really just impacts whole body immune status so deeply. Um, so that was kind of a realization I came into around this time when I was starting at Princeton for my PhD. Um, I discovered Joel Green's work and his book, The Immunity Code, 
and really, really got obsessed with the microbiome because my research at Princeton was focused on metabolism. Uh, there's some projects actually ongoing in the lab that are in the area of microbiome research, but my research was focused mostly on um, understanding how different diets and fasting impact metabolism at the whole body level and at the tissue specific level. Um, but I also just, like I mentioned, became very obsessed with the microbiome during this time, just from my own personal issues that I've had with my gut in the past and really looking to optimize health. I found that the evidence very compelling that the gut should be the place where we focus first before even going towards any sort of other optimization like cognition, fat loss, um, these areas that are, you know, so important for so many people, if we can start at the gut first and really get the immune response tailored to an anti-inflammatory state, then it makes life much easier to optimize basically every other aspect of health. And I think I'll stop there. Maybe you have some questions. I have so many questions, so much to unpack. And first of all, congratulations on losing a hundred pounds is no small feat. Uh, th that is huge. My, my only, you know, when I was in high school and college, my weight would take some wild swings because I had no idea how to eat and I was playing basketball and I was trying to put on weight like muscle and I would end up putting on a little muscle and then a lot of fat and this cycling and it started with I'm six seven I'm much bigger than you but I would put on like 20 25 pounds of, of not the good weight and then in college my freshman year uh I would say pizza and beer definitely contributed uh, food groups for a college student <laughs> yeah i after i dislocated my shoulder and my season got cut short i just like completely uh, you know our coach got we had a terrible season i got injured my coach got fired so i was like whatever so i completely let myself go and i went from like 240 to 270 and i and I had to lose 30 pounds, like basically over the summer. Uh, and I, I figured out how to do it, but it was hard. Uh, but with all that said, th there's a, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot to unpack. And what I find so interesting, you know, is this kind of gut centered approach to, to weight management, if you will, like on one hand, look, you, you, you cut calories and you work out a lot and that, that's going to be effective to, to some degree, but you didn't feel good and you had other issues. And so I, I think it's safe to say that most people want to feel good about their weight, whatever that looks like, we're all different and also feel good and <laughs> you know, not have IBS and feel like they have a strong immune system. And I think it's interesting that you started at this place from like macros to some degree, like counting calories and processed food, but like it works to thinking about and executing on a plan of, of eating organic and more whole foods. And ultimately that's what worked because it sounds like you know, you're doing, you're, you're looking at the macros, you developed an unhealthy relationship with food, disordered eating to some degree and totally makes sense. Why, uh, very common as you pointed out to then pivoting to, you know, a whole foods approach. And that ultimately led you to 
kind of keeping the keeping the weight off and feeling good and IBS gone, skin issues gone. So like, how do you, th- I think that's just so interesting. How, how do you, th- because when I look at the weight loss industry, it's just like, no one's really talking about that. So like, let's start there. Like, let's say everyone is tuning in. There is a, there is a, a new school. It is Alexis's, you know, Weight Management 101, like what is that approach? Because it seems like we're getting so much wrong. Like this gut-centric weight management approach. How do you do how do you think about that today? And I know we're all individuals. I, you know, I know, you know, some but I'll start there. Yeah, totally. I mean, so now that microbiome research is really picking up, it's becoming pretty clear that certain species of bacteria in the gut play very important roles in health and disease. So one particular is known as Acromantia mucinophila, and Acromantia lives in the mucus layer of the colon. And if you look broadly at people who are obese versus lean um, into adulthood and, you know, even into like elderly years, you can see that people who have longer health spans and better metabolic health have higher levels of Acromantia in the gut versus people with obesity and diabetes. They're basically underrepresented in Acromantia populations. And we know that acromancy is really important for controlling the integrity of the tight junctions in the gut. And the tight junctions are essentially what allows certain things to pass through versus keeping other things out. And so when somebody has a leaky gut, that's essentially those tight junctions breaking down. So acromancy is super important for maintaining these tight junctions and ultimately actually less uh, promoting less energy harvest from food. So you actually, on the calories in side of the equation, you end up getting less calories in if you have high levels of acromantia just, you know, from a simple like absorption standpoint. So that's one factor that it plays in um, managing weight. So if you can optimize acromantia, it can be super beneficial for metabolic health and weight loss. Um, In addition to just the energy harvest standpoint, by, you know, preventing leaky gut or reversing leaky gut, you're getting less of an insult to your immune cells that are surrounding that area. So in the context of a leaky gut, you essentially will have LPS, which is lipopolysaccharide, and it's from certain species of bacteria in the gut. It's it's considered an endotoxin. So E. coli expresses this, other bacteria also express it. If it leaks through into the circulation or is exposed to the immune cells in that gut region, it essentially triggers off an inflammatory response. And if LPS enters into the circulation, it gets trapped in adipose tissue, which basically happens because LPS is um, fat soluble. So it's attracted to fat mass in the body. And when LPS is in the fat mass, it's basically triggering off inflammation in the adipose depots because there's a lot of immune cells that live in fat tissue. And so you're basically promoting a lot of inflammation in adipose tissue which is going to ultimately make it more difficult to lose that fat because the fat is essentially being injured. It's not functioning, you know, at, at, at its peak. It's, it's not metabolically healthy. And when that's happening, you're just really setting yourself up for an uphill battle if you're trying to lose weight. So focusing on optimizing acromancia can be super helpful from not only the energy harvesting standpoint, but also the inflammatory standpoint. And then if you also bring bifidobacteria into the equation, bifidobacteria is another really key group of bacteria that live in the gut that also control immune status. So essentially, bifidobacteria makes molecules known as short-chain fatty acids. Um, It also 
makes molecules that feeds other bacteria that create short-chain fatty acids, particularly butyrate, which is a major fuel source for colon cells. And butyrate is also immunomodulatory, so it promotes an anti-inflammatory um, anti-inflammatory activities within immune cells. So by optimizing bifidobacteria and acromantia, you can essentially control whole body inflammatory status, which really just sets you up for um, you know, making your life easier as you're trying to lose weight and then also preventing weight regain. Because as you mentioned, like fat loss is only kind of one part of the picture. It's also like keeping the fat off is probably the bigger problem for most people. A lot of people can lose weight, but keeping it off is another story. And there's also like an interesting phenomenon that's worth noting. And that is the first time tr somebody tries to lose weight, it tends to be quite easy. But then if they don't, you know, have the lifestyle and the diet um, kind of tailored to that new body weight and they regain that weight, it becomes increasingly more difficult to lose weight again. Um, so the more somebody yo-yos, the more stiff, essentially, their fat is getting. The There's something called extracellular matrix, which basically makes up like the structure of fat. And as you continue to lose and gain weight, that structure becomes stiffer and less pliable, like less um, cooperative with like the fat loss process. So that's creating an additional inflammatory injury, actually, and kind of, you know, basically set you up to regain that fat because the fat wants to be restored to its previous structure. So that's just to say that, you know, if we focus on the microbiome first and control inflammatory status, and then, you know, really begin to shift into like a, a better way of eating instead of just restricting or like replacing, that can be hugely beneficial for people in the long term when they're trying to lose weight. So how do we optimize for acromancia and bif is it bifido? I always pronounce it wrong, bifidobacteria. I know bifido is like a whole family, but acromancia, how do we optimize for both? Yep. So basically there's both supplemental and dietary approaches. And now that, you know, the microbiome research is becoming increasingly more popular, there's an increasing number of tools and, you know, supplements on the market that are available to kind of modulate these communities of bacteria. So in the case of acromancia and bifido, actually, they both really like polyphenols. So if you think dark red fruits like pomegranate cherries, um, dark grapes, all the berries, like wild blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, these all contain molecules called polyphenols, which are essentially antioxidant molecules. So in addition to like scavenging free radicals, they also can directly feed these bacteria, you know, serve as a food source. So by eating these types of foods, um, beets would also be included in there, any sort of dark pigments, um, they can really be a great ally for boosting bifido and acromancia. Also, apple peels are a particularly potent uh, food source for acromancia, so the red apple peels. And there's apple peel powder available now, so people don't have to necessarily peel apples. Um, but this is one of the protocols in, in Joel's book, The Immunity Code. So it's essentially a gut protocol that's geared towards optimizing both bifido and acromancia, and it consists of the apple peel powder. It consists of a red polyphenol powder. And then the third ingredient is something called human milk oligosaccharides, or HMOs. So HMOs were originally discovered in human breast milk, and essentially their goal, their, their, their purpose in breast milk is to seed bifidobacteria in the infant gut. And if you look at the microbiome of an infant, it's 90% or more bifidobacteria for this reason. So there's upwards of 200 different types of HMOs in breast milk. Um, but one of the primary ones is called 2 lactose or 2-FL. 
and that's available as a supplement now. So you can basically take this powder to promote the growth of bifidobacteria in the gut. And it's very effective. There's literature showing that it's effective. Um, I actually did stool test testing recently through a couple companies. I'm going to compare them um, just to see where my levels are at now. Uh, maybe we can come back to stool testing a little bit later because I think there's um, maybe a time and place for it. But I don't think you know it's necessarily all that it's cracked up to be just yet. That's my struggle with it because I, I hear random. My, my take is it's 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 still evolving. It's not. And look, I, I do a lot of blood testing and lab work, and there's still variability there. But my sense is there's huge variability with stool testing. Yeah, I mean, my take on stool testing is that essentially it's it can be useful as a relative measure. So if you do a stool test and then you have some sort of intervention, like let's say you start the, this gut protocol. And then, you know, a couple months later, you do it again. You can see the relative changes in your microbiome. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. But if you're just looking at it, your stool, you know, microbiome sequencing on a one-off, um, like a as a one-off thing, then you're not going to really be able to get any useful information, in my opinion, because the absolute values of different bacteria present, it's just going to vary so wildly, you know, person to person. And it's not really going to provide any useful information um, but on a relative basis, I think it could be quite useful in some contexts, at least. And I want to come back to some of the foods because I always believe in, you know, and, and I'm, I love supplements. We have a supplement line. I'm a supplement junkie, but I always believe in food first. And what was so interesting, you're talking about the polyphenols, but then you specified apples, but not just apples, red apple peels. So just for clarity, not green apple peels, not it's got, does it have to be red apple peels? So like a, a red whole apple can't be green apple. Yeah, so basically the red pigment in red apple peels is a specifically good food source for acromantia. That's why it's very specific to the red apples, yep. Got it. Fascinating. So, you know, as you mentioned, most people can initially get the weight off, but then they struggle to keep it off. In your opinion, what goes wrong post-weight loss that we, that we just can't keep it off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a complex issue, but ultimately I think the way to circumvent it, it can be quite simple. And that's essentially maintaining muscle mass during fat loss and also prioritizing muscle gain in the post-fat loss period. Um, we know muscle as like a major metabolic organ in the body, and it's basically going to be controlling metabolic health at, at some level like for your entire life. So um, if muscle is metabolically healthy, then you're basically, if you're having carbohydrates in a meal, it's going to be soaked up into the muscle. The muscle is like a sponge for glucose in an insulin sensitive muscle. And, you know, in the absence of that, you're essentially having elevated circulating glucose levels for extended periods of time, uh, leads to obvious declines in cognition, brain fog, uh, low energy levels. But then also like metabolically, it can be quite stressful in the body because if glucose is circulating for too long, um, different adducts can form in the circulation that can basically drive up inflammation and tissue damage. So you're basically setting, you know, yourself up for a feed forward mechanism where insulin resistance gets worse, inflammation gets worse, and they kind of um, can spiral. So inflammation at the level of the muscle is kind of what's driving insulin resistance to begin with. Um, essentially, once muscle function is impaired and you know mitochondria are damaged, mitochondria are the major um, energy producing organelles within cells and in the muscle mitochondria are burning fat. Um, they're burning glucose, uh, assuming that your activity levels are, um, 
you're not doing like high intensity training, you're doing like moderate or low. So these mitochondria are super important for maintaining metabolic health and just like making sure that substrate flux through the energy producing pathways is high. You can essentially see in diabetes and obesity, it's like there's a lot of stagnation going on. And, you know, in life in general, like stagnation just begets death. And this is essentially like a slow dying process where the mitochondria are functioning, energy production is sluggish and low. Inflammation is high because if mitochondria are damaged, basically these reactive oxygen species can leak out and can, you know, basically poison other structures around them. And so in this very sick and metabolically unhealthy muscle, there's nowhere to really put glucose. Um, and then, you know, it ends up getting shuttled into fat synthesis and, you know, lingering in the blood circulation for too long um, and just kind of setting you up for disease of all, of all kinds. Like I think insulin resistance probably underlies the vast majority of disease. And actually Jerry Shulman's work, he's at, at Yale, he showed that even in sedentary college age students, there was already insulin resistance in their muscle, even though they didn't have elevated blood glucose levels yet. And turns out that hyperglycemia doesn't occur until up to 10 years after insulin resistance began. So you have a 10 year window to identify insulin resistant muscle before, you know, you actually get to the point where your fasting glucose is at a hundred or maybe a little bit above a hundred. So this is, this disease takes a long time to develop. And so there's all, all these points in time where we can intervene. And, you know, in his work, he showed that literally a single exercise bout was able to reverse insulin resistance in the muscle. So exercise is a very potent tool for increasing energy flux through the muscle, you know, increasing substrate turnover, preventing the stagnation. And, you know, in our sedentary society, that's, you know, largely not resistance exercise, like a lot of people may do some walking, which is great. Like any movement's going to be great, but there's a particular utility for resistance training because you're actually building this highly metabolic organ to just help your body be more resilient and tolerate, you know, all the insults that may come its way. And so you can get away with actually a lot more if you have more muscle mass. And, you know, there's a lot of like, I would say fit sick people out there that have a lot of muscle, but you know, maybe aren't necessarily very healthy, but I would say that it's probably easier for those people to get healthy than somebody who's like very, you know, low muscle mass and, uh, you know, hasn't really weight trained ever, um, which is probably the majority of people. Uh, but you know, it doesn't really have to be made too difficult. Like you can even do body weight exercises at home. Like that's a great start. If you don't have a, access to a gym, um, you can get a couple kettlebells in and get a great workout and, you know, building muscle, can really, you know, be the ultimate ally in your health span and, you know, optimizing your metabolic health and weight loss long-term. 100% agreed. And I'm curious your take on what the bare minimum is for strength training. Is it, you know, like, like, like you said, is it, you know, some, some body weight exercises, maybe some kettlebells at home three or three days a week, 15 minutes or so, like what, what, what are you talking about in terms of like, what do we really need? Yeah. So, I mean, the lower body muscles are definitely the, the largest muscles in our, in our body. So prioritizing those muscle groups would probably get you the most bang for your buck. So if you're going to be doing, you know, squats, you know, you can use the kettlebell, you can do deadlifts, squats, lunges. Um, I would say, you know, if you're 
strapped for time and or, you know, don't really have the motivation to do more than that, at least focus on your lower body um, because that's really going to set overall, you know, muscle mass for your, your entire body. So um, focusing on those, I would say, you know, maybe at least three days a week or 45 minutes if possible. Uh, you don't necessarily have to go to failure to get the most, you know, most of the benefit. Um, and it's, you know, going to be particularly challenging. Maybe if you don't have a lot of uh, access to certain equipment, you wouldn't probably be able to go to failure anyway. You would just have to do way too many reps. Um, but high volume training can be, you know, just as beneficial, if not more beneficial in certain contexts. So you're actually, it's less taxing to the nervous system. Um, you can do more load per week. So you'll get also less fatigue. So you end up, you know, you can do the same muscle groups multiple days, even in a row. So, you know, I particularly recommend high volume training to people. Um, and that's basically, you know, leaving two or three reps in, left in the tank, essentially, not ever really going to failure unless, you know, you have to for some sort of competition or something like that. But um, that can be, you know, majorly beneficial. If you have access to a gym, you know, prioritizing deadlift would be great. Um, you know, people also need to be mindful of form too. So if you can find a good trainer, that would be ideal because you don't want to get injured, which would just lay you up. And, you know, if you're laid up, you're going to be losing muscle mass. So you want to make sure that you're lifting appropriately with good form, um, with enough load to actually get your muscles to grow and become stronger, but, you know, not so much that you're going to be burning yourself out and unable to train multiple days a week. And you bring up a good point with form and, you know, with regards to the legs for me personally, I had a number of back issues, L4, L5, S1, excruciating sciatica, and I am paranoid. My back's fine today. Almost had back surgery. Yoga saved me from back surgery. It's a big part of the, the why behind my buddy green. Uh, but I'm paranoid about weight on my back. And I started to do, because I think it all started when I was playing basketball in college and doing like deadlift. Like we just lifted for power. It was just different. And I like, it all started back then. But at any rate, I'm paranoid about it. And so instead of doing like squats with weight, what I'll do now is I'll do air squats or I'll do squats with the medicine ball. And I'll just like go for as many reps. I'll just go until I can't go anymore. Just because I know if I, cause what happens too, is you start going and you know, towards the end, you know, when you're kind of getting fatigued, form tends to go a little bit and I know it will, but I'm not gonna hurt myself if I'm doing an air squat. Form starts to go and I got weight on my back, I'm gonna get hurt. Yeah, it's definitely a big threat and the nervous system can sense that too. So the less comfortable you are in the lift, the more likely you are to be kind of locked up in certain areas. Your form's probably not going to be ideal um, in that case. So I think that totally makes sense. Have you ever tried a uh, half field squats with the safety bar? I have not. What are those? They're amazing. So the safety bar, the safety squat bar, it's like it has this pad that wraps around and then it comes over your shoulders and you hold these handles here. Oh, interesting. But in the Hatfield squat, you basically will be in a power rack and then there's handles essentially attached to the rack. And so when you squat down, you're basically balancing the bar on your neck because it like cradles around your uh, the back of your neck. And then you hold the handles so that when you squat down, you can like lean back and it really hits your glutes and not so much your quads like a normal back squat would. So I have actually like permanently switched to doing these. I just feel like they um, are more conducive to what I'm trying to hit muscularly. Like if I want to hit my quads, I can do front squats 
or like goblet squats, but in a back squat, I'm, I really want to hit like the back of my leg and the Hatfield squats are really great for that. Got it. Interesting. I don't have, basically I lean on the gym in our building, which is pretty good, but doesn't have everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a specialty uh, item. <laughs> so I want to bring it back to the microbiome. Something else I thought you said was interesting. You mentioned leaky gut. And I feel like leaky gut is one of these things where not everyone necessarily agrees it's a real thing. So let's talk about leaky gut and the role it plays in weight management. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, maybe there's not as much of a debate as weather exists. It's more like whether it matters and like what, how do you actually define it and like assess it from a clinical standpoint, which I would say is probably pretty difficult right now, but there's definitely tools that are developing and like biomarkers that are being developed to assess this. So like something that could be potentially used as a biomarker would be LPS. But the only thing is if you're looking at a blood LPS to assess gut permeability, you essentially need to have some sort of baseline to compare to because there's probably going to be quite a bit of inter-individual variability between the levels that you would assess, you, you would see in the gut, um, in the blood rather. So, um, you know, maybe some in the future we could have like LPS being measured routinely in people. So then you can see relative changes and kind of create inferences from that. Um, there's also something called zonulin, which is one of the proteins that makes up tight junctions. So that can also be used as kind of a readout for leaky gut, but mostly like from my perspective, um, assessing whether leaky gut is an issue for somebody would be primarily based on like the way they're feeling, their symptomology, and then also their exposures. So we know if you're eating a lot of high, uh, like ultra processed foods and a lot of emulsifiers specifically, uh, this can be a real issue for the gut. And that's essentially because emulsifiers will break down these tight junctions that form the barrier, the gut barrier. And, you know, so that can create issues over time. If somebody has like high CRP, for example, and they don't have any other known um, diseases or issues going on, then I would personally suspect something going on at the gut level because the gut is so important for setting inflammatory status. So if there's inflammation in the body in general, then we're going to look at the gut first because that's really the way that immune status is being set uh, at the whole body level. So if you and, go to... So yeah. just for a second, I just want to pause there for a second because I think this is an important point. So, you know, if, you, if you're not feeling well and you go to your doc and they can't figure it out, they look at you and you're like, you know, you look fine. All the, everything looks fine, but a high C-reactive protein could be the clue that someone's looking for of, hey, maybe I have leaky gut. Because I think that's where people struggle. It's like, how do I know if I have this thing? There's so... That's one indication. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly plausible, especially in the modern food environment with our exposures and, you know, all, all the chemicals that we're encountering from a day-to-day -day basis. If your CRP is also high and you don't have any other diagnoses, then the first thing that I would do is try to optimize the gut and then see if that we can get that number to come down. It's a, I think it's a pretty good metric, honestly, for, you know, assessing whole body inflammatory status. And it's something I usually have, you know, people measure if they're working with me. Uh, so we can basically decide whether or not we need to prioritize the gut um, and prioritize bringing down inflammation or if we can go straight into whatever other goals they may have, whether it's like boosting cognition, um, fat loss, muscle gain, et cetera. 
But if you don't have inflammation under control to begin with, it's just, like I mentioned before, going to make everything else more difficult. So that's where I always start. And so you originally were eating a lot of processed foods. You've since evolved your diet. How would you describe your diet today in terms of how do you eat, you know, whole foods, processed plants, animals, sounds like no dairy anymore. Uh, how would you just describe your diet today? Yeah. I mean, so actually the great thing about that gut protocol I mentioned before is that I actually completely reversed my dairy intolerance or dairy reactivity. Yeah. So I can eat dairy now and I'm totally fine. I can, I can literally eat anything and I don't have any issues. And it's essentially from optimizing, you know, these crucial bacteria that are basically preventing any of these, um, antigens from food. So like from dairy, for example, from ever even encountering immune cells to trigger off an inflammatory response. So that's uh, a really big, uh, I would say, vote of confidence for the the gut protocol, at least in my case, like I actually when I cut out dairy, and then I tried to reintroducing it like three years later, I had a really strong, um, like inflammatory immune response. And if I had any dairy, I would literally gain like five pounds of water weight overnight, just from the inflammation itself. And so it's, I, what I'm thinking happened is like, after I cut dairy out very strictly for so long, it kind of sensitized my immune cells to, to whatever antigens that they were responding to. So when I ate it again, it was like, they were ready to go off. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a role of bifidobacteria and acromantia in like reversing or reducing food sensitivities and food allergies, which is, I think, very important to note. So beets, pomegranates, raspberries, red apple peels. It's like, I think a lot of people who are sensitive to dairy are probably just perked up and said, wow, I need to try this. I would love ice cream again. I would love some full fat dairy ice cream again. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's absolutely worth a shot for anybody who is dealing with dairy issues. I personally was on the protocol for like six months straight before trying to introduce it, but that's mostly because I was, you know, I had such a strong reaction that I didn't want to take any chances. Like I kind of just did it for a long period of time, but for other people, you know, maybe depending on the severity of their issues, they may not have to be on it for so long. Maybe like a month or two months could be enough for them to see tangible benefits. Um, but outside of that, so regarding my diet in general, I would say that uh, it's probably about 50-50 plant foods and animal foods. Sometimes I lean more heavily towards animal foods. Like during the winter months, I tend to eat more animal foods. In the summer, I like, I like to eat lighter and just have more like raw plant foods and just plant foods in general. Um, and you know, I try to buy my produce locally. So like I have a farm box that comes, um, you know, during the summer it comes weekly and that basically is sourced from all local organic, like regenerative farms. So supporting that economy and, and really just getting better nutrition in general, because the food is fresher and, um, you know, not sitting around on a shelf or like flying halfway across the world to get to my plate. And then, you know, I'm blessed to have a lot of really good local, farms around here that have like amazing meats uh, available. So I definitely take advantage of those most of the time. So that's kind of what my diet looks like roughly, but otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm pretty big foodie and like, I like a lot of different types of foods. So I'm not very restrictive in like the specific foods that I'm eating. And how much of your diet, like how much would you say is processed these days? It's just like a snack here or there. Like I like Lily's chocolate, the stevia sweetened chocolate. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I like to have that as a snack. Other than that, you know, maybe ice cream here or there, but it's just like very few and far between. Got it. 
So it leads me to my next question around all the different diets out there. So, you know, without, without going to the specific, you know, branded diets or protocols at the highest level, you've got vegan, you've got vegetarian, you've got Mediterranean, you've got paleo, and you've got keto. That's why I would kind of summarize for the most part, the, the, the big ones, if you will. What, what does the scientific literature say when it comes to weight loss effectiveness when you look at all those diets and, and understood that we're all unique individuals and, you know, but if you had to generalize, what does really science say about these diets and how effective they are for looking to, to lose weight? So it's an interesting question. I mean, ultimately the science would say calories are all that matters. And as long as you're not eating more than you're expending, then you're going to be losing weight. Um, I would say certain diets can make it easier to eat less versus not. So keto, for example, you know, people often report, and I've also done keto in the past, so I can also say it was true for myself that, you know, appetite tends to be suppressed. And that's basically because you're kind of activating these fasting pathways in the body that kind of promote, um, like foraging behaviors. So it will actually promote activity levels, um, and energy expenditure in that way, and then also inhibit appetite so that I mean, evolutionarily, so probably so that you could focus on hunting and foraging to get food that you need to survive. Um, whereas a more high carbohydrate diet just tends to like activate the um, like hunger hormones and response in the body. So you may tend, if you're eating a lot of foods that give you kind of like these blood sugar swings like this, um, to have like enhanced appetite. So you may end up having more of a difficult time remaining in a calorie deficit. So I would say the literature isn't really conclusive about one specific diet being better than another. Each diet kind of has unique features. So like ketogenic diet, for example, will activate the, well, actually will inhibit the NRLP3 inflammasome, which basically can reduce whole body inflammation. And so a lot of the water weight that people are losing in the beginning of the diet is not only from glycogen loss from you know, not eating carbohydrates, but also water weight from lowering inflammation. So depending on the issues that somebody has going on, um, that could be beneficial in the short term. But I think in the long term, restricting any one food group is going to have diminishing returns and potentially cause health issues. Um, so for example, in the case of like keto and carnivore, they've become quite popular, even though, you know, there's not a lot of research on their long-term effects. And now we're seeing clinically a lot of people coming in who have been on the diet for a couple of years um, who now basically have this glucose intolerant phenotype where if they try to eat carbs, their blood sugar just skyrockets and they're not able to tolerate them anymore. And we don't exactly know the etiology of this at this point, but one possibility is that basically these pancreatic beta cells, which produce insulin, um, become either dormant or undergo apoptosis, which is programmed cell death in response to long-term carbohydrate restriction, which is essentially preventing you from mounting a proper insulin response in response to eating carbohydrates after you've been on the diet for a long period of time. Um, so it's unclear whether or not, you know, this dormancy or inactivation can be reversed, but something, this is something that really should be considered if you're trying to, you know, restrict food groups for a long period of time, it's probably going to do more harm than good. And ultimately, the best diet is probably going to be 
the one that's balanced and the one, you know, that's not overly restrictive and the one that you can adhere to for the, for the long term. hundred percent agreed. And we don't talk enough about it. And where I, from where I sit, it's why I'm such a big fan of the Mediterranean diet. It, 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 it's a lifestyle. It's not really restrictive. Uh, it's doable. Yeah. I think there's a lot of really good nutrients going on in the Mediterranean diet. I think, um, if you go to like the Mediterranean, there's a lot of different styles of eating, I would say around there. So it's not just one thing, but in general, it has a lot of, a lot of polyphenols, uh, a lot of healthy fats and, you know, lean meats. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, I, th- I think a solid eating pattern. So it sounds like if you, if you were recreating your own food pyramid, it sounds like polyphenols play a prominent role. That would be the top of your, your food pyramid. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's kind of tied with like overall protein intake because I think, you know, in this very metabolically unhealthy environment, muscle mass and like um, like prioritizing the maintenance of muscle mass has to play a big role, especially throughout the aging process because you're just going to be preventing so many diseases in the long term. So a diet that both has adequate protein to maintain and grow muscle as well as polyphenols to mitigate inflammation and optimize the microbiome, they would both be kind of tied for first. And so in terms of protein, something I'm cognizant of, you know, I'll be 48 soon. I've got a history of cardiovascular disease in my family. And if I eat a lot of meat, my lipid profile starts to, to not look good. Uh, so I, you know, I'll still eat meat, but not as much as I used to. With that said, what are your favorite sources? I, I always love this question. I, I get it all the time. I love asking it. For those who lean plant-based, what are your, what are your favorite plant-based sources of protein? It's a good question. Um, the problem with a lot of plant-based sources of protein is that, you know, in order to get a complete protein source and then also adequate protein in a meal, um, you kind of have to go the process route. So like some sort of powder or, um, you know, processed soy or processed wheat. And I don't prefer that personally. Um, Otherwise, you know, you can get enough protein by combining certain foods together, certain plant foods together, but you also get a major carbohydrate load typically when you're doing that. So, you know, in the context of weight loss, it can be hard to get adequate protein while also restricting calories. If you're not getting you know, a very protein rich food that's like an animal based food. So I don't know if I have a particularly favorite form of, of, you know, plant based protein, but I mean, if somebody was vegetarian, like eggs are fine. Um, or if somebody's like pescatarian, obviously shellfish are amazing sources of protein and micronutrients. Um, you know, fish is fine. Also, of course, uh, it's also a complete source of protein. Um, but yeah, in general for like people who are leaning more towards vegan, I ultimately will end up leaning more on like protein powder to get them to reach their goals, but it's not optimal in my opinion. Right. So in terms of fish, does smash still hold up for you? Sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon and herring in terms of that, it's like a big functional medicine, functional medicine doctors love smash. Yeah. Um, in theory, yes, but then it depends also on the sourcing. So like I worry about people eating a lot of canned fish personally. And there's like also arsenic can be quite high in some of the canned fish and like there can be just heavy metal issues in general. So um, it's something to be mindful of that at least balancing like fresh with canned, if somebody's going to go like the smash route. Yep. 
Um, and then also just like from a sustainability standpoint, I don't know how much longer seafood is going to be available in, in this capacity. So, um, yeah, I think leaning more towards the smaller fish are good. Um, and if you can get them fresh, that would be even better. So it sounds like, you know, legumes obviously have protein, but it sounds like you're not a fan because of the carbohydrates and calories in order to get enough protein. Yeah. So, I mean, I personally love legumes. Like I love eating chickpeas and beans and you know everything like this, but they're not in themselves a complete protein source. So you need to combine them, first of all, with something else that can balance out the amino acid profile so that you're getting all of the essential amino acids. Um, and then, you know, if you're using that solely as your protein source, it's not going to be as bioavailable just from a digestibility standpoint, um, as like an animal based food. So it can be, it can contribute to overall protein intake, but it's hard to get your like optimal protein intake from eating them alone. So how would you balance out? I, I love, I love beans. I love chickpeas. I love refried beans. How would you balance out? those specifically like a like if you had to do meat like i'm just curious like would it be like a couple ounces of, of chicken or grass-fed like how would you balance that out i'm just curious yeah i mean i think if you have a couple ounces of meat with you know a serving of of chickpeas or beans of some sort that would be adequate um to get enough of the essential amino acids to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and keep your muscle at least keep your muscle mass and then if you're also like trying to put muscle mass on that you might want to tailor your protein intake to that as well. But yeah, I think that would be appropriate. Got it. And so I'm going to come back to one of my all time favorite drinks, coffee, because on your Instagram, you recently shared something about coffee best practices, which caught my attention. So please tell us more about coffee best practices. I thought this was fascinating. Yeah, sure. So I think Coffee is an, like kind of a contentious topic because a lot of people love to drink it. And frankly, a lot of people use it as an excuse to eat a lot of sugar. Like a lot of the drinks that are available at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, it's like 70 grams of sugar. And this is just like mind blowing. But if you're using coffee, you know, more responsibly um, and, you know, not over consuming it, it can be fine, but there's ways to optimize uh, basically your coffee intake to make sure that you're getting the most out of it without experiencing some of the drawbacks. So for example, coffee can cause gut irritation in many people. And actually a lot of people will use coffee to help them go to the bathroom, which is like a red flag to begin with. Um, and so, you know, making sure first of all, that your coffee intake isn't excessive, um, and that you're not using it as a way to promote a natural bodily function would be number one. Um, but it's also super important to make sure that you're getting quality coffee because coffee, the way that it's stored, um, can be very prone to mold, uh, contamination. So it's important to get a coffee source that is third party tested for mycotoxins. So you're not unintentionally poisoning yourself, um, you know, with these quite frankly, quite damaging, um, molecules that can cause a lot of insidious issues. Like a lot of people with thyroid issues, have mold toxicity and it's not discussed at all or even assessed in like mainstream clinical practice. So super important to make sure that you're not having any, you know, um, you know, exposures to mold in general, but then also not through something you're actually putting inside your body. Um, in addition to that, you can kind of optimize the energy response to coffee by combining it with something called L-theanine. 
So L-theanine is an amino acid that's found in matcha tea leaves, and it's actually, it provides that like kind of umami flavor to matcha. So L-theanine actually stimulates GABA production, which is kind of a, one of the major inhibitory neurotransmitters in the brain that kind of has a calming effect. And so if you combine L-theanine with caffeine in the form of coffee, it kind of, kind of like smooths out the effects of coffee and can create more of like a long sustained um, energy without like the big spike and crash. Uh, in addition to that, you can combine your coffee with some sort of fat source. So, you know, people can use heavy cream or, you know, coconut cream um, or butter, something that has a little bit of like proteins with the fat to help emulsify into the coffee. And then the fat essentially will bind onto the caffeine because the caffeine is fat soluble and it creates kind of a time release source of caffeine so that you don't get like an immediate peak and then a crash in the afternoon. Instead, you're kind of um, adding to that like slow, sustained energy that, you know, ultimately I think everybody's looking for when they're going into their workday. Totally hear you on the mycotoxins and mold. I, I, our, our friend Dave Asprey has danger coffee, which I love because of that I know he tests. Um, but something else I'm, I'm curious about, espresso versus drip. There was actually a paper out, I think it was last year, that showed... And maybe this isn't directly related to espresso, but it's related to like French press versus drip. Um, and that is that if you're drinking unfiltered coffee in the form of like, let's say a French press. So there was a study done, I think it was in Sweden. It was in one of the Nordic countries. And they basically published that individuals who drank unfiltered coffee had higher mortality rates and higher incidence of cardiovascular illness uh, compared to people who didn't drink coffee or drank filtered coffee. And if you drank filtered coffee that's like basically filtered through one of those paper filters or like the drip coffee, um, you actually had, you know, protected, you were protected against cardiovascular illness and increased mortality. You actually had decreased uh, relative risk of both of those. So, and essentially they chalked it up to there's these two molecules that are found in coffee that essentially get filtered out. Um, if you're using a paper filter that don't get removed, if you're using the French press and it actually can promote oxidative stress and inflammation and can drive up mortality risk and cardiovascular illness in these individuals. Wow. So I caught up with, with my, my friend, Alberto Perlman, who is the CEO of Zumba. And he was telling me about the study and I was like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? We love coffee. And he also, and I'm curious, you're, so you got you got to use the filter. We use the Chemex uh, here at home. How does this, is espresso considered filtered or unfiltered? So the espresso, in my understanding, espresso is just the type of roast that the beans get. So it's like a darker roast. And it's also like the concentration, like the amount of total water you use. So you can totally make at home like and you can take espresso blend and like make it through filtered coffee. You're just going to be using less water. So it's more concentrated. And then that, you know, then you can make a filtered espresso. I'm not sure if, you know, at the majority of retailers you would go to get espresso, whether or not they're using filtered. From my understanding, I think most like Starbucks, I don't think is filtered. Um, but, you know, some places may, I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think espresso is considered unfiltered. Mm. which would be not <laughs> good. Yeah, I mean, especially a lot of people are consuming espresso, so. Yeah, I have espresso because he, he, when Alberto shared the study, he shared in the context of, of espresso versus versus drip. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, what? 
but I, I think espresso is considered unfiltered so that we should probably limit our espresso. It's lower in caffeine, but not good for cardiovascular health. Yeah, or make it at home and, and then you can filter it yourself. And yeah. So in closing, what, what do you most, you know, all the research you're, you're doing, all, all, all that you're working on, what are you most excited about right now? Where do you, what, do you, what would you like to share with our audience? Yeah, so I mean, I graduated in December and I started my own business. So I've basically been working with clients since around April and it's been super rewarding. So I was actually initially supposed to go do a postdoc at Harvard that I ended up calling off kind of last minute um, during the pandemic. And really, you know, there were like personal circumstances that caused me to make that decision. But then also I was kind of done with academic politics and really want to just get out there and like start working with people because uh, it's like bench work is great. And I really enjoyed that aspect of research, but it is quite far removed from actual actually impacting people's lives in a positive way. So, you know, since I've graduated, I've been working with clients one-on-one to help them optimize their performance and health. And, you know, a lot of people come to me kind of disenfranchised with mainstream medicine, looking for alternative solutions. And that's really the most rewarding thing I can imagine. And like, I'm loving doing this work. I'm currently working with like one-on-one with clients, um, but I'm also going to be launching some more like group containers in the coming months. So I'm really excited about that. Um, really just trying to, you know, help people get access to good information that's actionable and, you know, not so cerebral that it, you can't figure out how to actually implement it in your life. I really want to provide people with information that um, can create tangible benefits in their life that they could experience, you know, acutely and chronically. So in general, that's, I would say, what I'm most excited about right now um, and just like seeing where this business develops and, and where everything goes from here. Awesome. Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great.